0: My name is Art Laramie. Please read along with me as I read today's scripture, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right, welcome. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you this morning, and thank you so much for coming to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted, as always, that you're here with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but there's a Packer game tonight. And a little bit of hype this week and uh, several weeks ago uh, my family and i were watching the packer game together a commercial break came on we had caught up to the live point in the game uh, those of you who have been around know that i like to start the games a little bit into it so that i can fast forward through some of the commercial breaks and we were now live in the game we hit a commercial break and my kids had grown impatient and said can we skip this part And i said unfortunately not i don't i can't skip live tv that would be time travel can't do that yet Um, and, and so began, of course, taking the opportunity to explain the hardships of my own childhood and not being able to fast forward anything, right? Uh, And my whole experience of watching Packer games for the majority of my life was watching them on a small 3x4 standard deaf television screen. We didn't have cable, and so uh, like many of you, I'm sure we had the experience of having to have somebody go up and adjust the rabbit ears and keep moving it around and trying to find just the right angle. Sometimes somebody would actually have to go up and hold on to the rabbit ears for an extended period of time in order for everyone else to enjoy the game or perhaps otherwise affix the rabbit ears leaning against a wall or something like that to try to make it work. People put aluminum foil on the rabbit ears. I don't know if there's any science behind that, but it made us feel better, at least about what it was we were trying to experience. And so began talking about all of the hardships of trying to watch a Packer game like that. And I remember very particularly after I had been married, um, Jessica and I bought our first HDTV at the time. And I remember our first experience of plugging in the HDTV and, and having cable going into that box and turning on the game and watching for the first time in crystal clear high definition, with all of the detail and the vibrant colors and being able to see on a TV that was bigger than I had ever owned in my entire life, it would now be considered a small TV by today's standards, but at the time, it was bigger than any TV TV I had ever seen or certainly owned, and I remember the experience being so different than what my experience had been growing up. It was like watching, in many ways, just a whole different game. It, It looked different, it felt different, the experience was different. And that experience was striking because what had been hidden before, what had been kind of foggy before, difficult to see, was now vibrant and clear. I think for many of us, we need a similar shift when it comes to our approach to reading God's Word. We need that approach of of things that were once difficult to see, hard, hard to recognize, beyond the definitions of our screen, as it were. They need to come into focus in a whole new way. See, some people read the Bible purely for inspiration. How do I begin to feel good about my life? I'm going through a hard stretch, and so I want to feel better. So what is it that I'm going to read that's going to inspire me today? Other people read the Bible in a more devotional sense. And by that, I don't mean daily devotions. But what I mean is they're, they're reading the Bible trying to find one nugget of truth. What's the truth that's going to carry me forward today? Some people approach the Bible as a guidebook. They're looking for particular advice on on how to handle their life. And so maybe they're going through a particularly difficult stretch of life, trying to figure out who I'm supposed to marry or what kind of job I'm supposed to take or, or what I'm supposed to major in in college. And they're looking to the Bible, trying to find some sort of specific answer about those things. And other people just read it as a rule book. What am I not doing that I'm supposed to be doing? What are the things that I am doing that I need to stop doing? And while the Bible certainly inspires and gives strength and gives guidance and gives direction, the purpose of the Bible is not primarily to do any of those things. The arc of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is intended to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is intended to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. It is intended to point us to our need for Jesus Christ. I read one author this week who illustrated it this way. He said, when we come to the Bible and understand it for the gospel intentionality with which it is written, when it happens for us like the first time, it's like the time when you go to the ophthalmologist. You sit down in the chair and he puts that cold, giant metal frame up against your face and he begins to flip through from one lens to another and he asks you the question of which one's better, one or two? One or two. Let me see one again. I got to see that. I don't remember what it looked like. One or two. Okay, now two or three, and he goes to the next one, and he keeps doing this until eventually he gets your particular prescription dialed in. He flips things around, and, and eventually he gets to that point where he flips it to the last lens, and all of a sudden, that little chart on the wall that everybody makes up along the way because they can't actually read what it says, it bursts into your vision, and you can now read the bottom line, It's like plugging in the HGTV for the first time, clarity. Something bursts off the page. And what Paul illustrates for us in this text today in Galatians chapter three is what it looks like to read the Bible through a gospel lens. You'll remember that the Judaizers within the Galatian church had infiltrated uh, the people of God, and they were coming saying, listen, Jesus is great, and yes, he's necessary, but you need to obey the law in order to find true salvation. In other words, they were saying, Jesus is great, but you really, Gentiles, you need to adopt Judaism. And if you adopt Judaism, if you obey the tenets of the law, that's where you're really going to find the assurance of your salvation. That's where you're really going to find happiness. And so Paul, in this text, puts on a masterclass of how to use and read and understand God's word. He uses three different Old Testament texts that these Judaizers would have known well, and he shows them how their own misunderstanding of the Old Testament was hazy and was misleading. He shows them how even the text in the Old Testament that these Jews might have used to undercut the gospel of Jesus Christ actually proved the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul is saying our tendency is to approach the Bible and to try to approach God with all of our own predispositions and all of our own assumptions and to try to make him fit our narrative. And when you do that, at best, you're only getting part of the picture. But once you understand the nature of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, the Christian life snaps into focus. And Paul gives us this insight by returning to the discussion that Dave left us with a couple of weeks ago, which is this nature of the law and the gospel, the distinctions, the differences, the relationship between the two. And he begins this in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's a bold way to start. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, if you were just to read that verse without any other context, only knowing the Old Testament scriptures, this verse should and ought scare us. But remember the broader context of what it is that Paul is talking about here. Remember that the Old Testament law was something that was given by God. Do you understand that the law of God is actually something that was given by him, it was provided by him, it was breathed from him, it was born of his character and his nature, it was perfect in its construction and its intent and its design? The law of God is a good and beautiful and wonderful thing. It was given to us to reveal God's holiness, to give us, in some sort of earthly context that we might understand, to give us a picture of just how amazing, just how different, just how holy, set apart God is. And it also marked the people of God as belonging to him. And so the law of the Old Testament defined all of the interactions that Jews had on on an everyday basis. It defined their responsibility towards God and neighbor, which is known as the moral law. What is your obligation in terms of the way that you act and interact with others? It outlined how the believers in God were to operate in society and in government, the civil law. It actually functioned within the context of their government. And it provided the laws that structured how believers in God were to approach the worship of God, which was the ceremonial law of God. How do we as unclean people make ourselves clean so that we may worship God appropriately? 613 laws according to one rabbi in particular, 613 laws all working together to reveal the character and the wonder and the glory of God. And this law is so incredible and in fact so beautiful in a sense that in the Psalms, David says of it, your law is like honey to my lips. He says, the law of God is sweet to me. It's something I want to meditate on day and night. It's something I want to think about. It's something I want to, I want it to envelop me as a person. I want it to be running through my mind constantly. And so the question then is, if the law is a good thing, God breathed, God inspired, God given, then in what way is reliance on the law a curse? How can that be? And Paul, in order to make his point, quotes Deuteronomy 27:26, chapter 27, verse 26. He quotes to the Judaizers and to the Galatian church from the law of God, from the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes them this verse, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And if you were to look at that verse and its surrounding context, what you find is that the law of God demanded that the entire law, all 613 laws, be kept perfectly, consistently, and in their entirety. The law itself did not give you an option of obeying 612. One of the laws was that you obey all of the law perfectly, consistently, and entirely. And what that means is that to fail at one point in the law meant that you were guilty of failing the entire law. Do you understand how difficult that is? By definition, it's impossible. And the reason that Deuteronomy 27 makes this point is because it's saying this, if salvation is provided by obedience to the law, then the failure to obey the law at any one point meant that your actions had betrayed your words and you are now deserving of the wrath of God. And the answer would come back from people naturally, well, that's impossible. How in the world could I be expected to do that? How could I possibly perfectly obey all 613 commandments in the Old Testament in their entirety for my entire life? And Paul's response is, that's exactly the point. So Philip Ryken in his commentary on Galatians said it this way, everyone who depends on the law is under a curse because the law curses everyone who breaks it, which everyone does. Ironically, by advocating obedience to the law, the Judaizers were not escaping God's, purse, God's curse, rather, but they were actually incurring it. And when you demand, either of yourself or someone else, that they perfectly obey the law of God, the only outcome is that you guarantee the wrath of God in their life. Because every time you fail to obey the law perfectly, all it does is highlight your sinfulness. See, the law of God was was meant to reveal the character and the nature of God. It was meant to reveal his holiness. And by extension, what it actually does is it reveals our sinfulness. And so when we try to find salvation in the law, it is looking for the law to do something that it was never intended to do. It'd be like the way that we try to use a map. You can use a map to show you where you are in the world to find your geographic location and you can use a map to show you where it is that you'd like to be but that map inherently has no power no ability to transport you from one place to another it was never designed like that it was never intended for that it wasn't the purpose for which that map was given. And the law functions exactly the same way. It shows you what the standard of perfection is, and it shows you where you fall short, but it has no power to carry you from one to the other. So adherence and obedience to the law does nothing other than undermine the very position that you are trying to take, which is to earn your own salvation. You are working at cross purposes against yourself. Unless we think this is, this is uh, uh, resigned to just the Old Testament law of God, anything that you are doing in your life in order to attain the love of God, earn salvation from God, guarantee your standing in his sight, is a law that you have created unto yourself. You're still beholden to the law of God, even if you don't recognize its standard in your life. So Paul uses the law from Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show these people that the law itself can save no one. And now he's going to use the law to show how salvation actually comes about. Verse 11. Now it is evident then that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, that is the law, shall live by them. So, Paul here quotes what appears to be one of his favorite passages in all of the Old Testament, because he quotes it not only here, but also in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul here quotes the prophet Habakkuk, with whom the Judaizers would have been incredibly familiar, and he says, we know that the law can't justify because the prophets themselves reminded us that the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, your spiritual life, your spiritual vitality, your spiritual intimacy with God does not come through obedience to the law. It comes through faith. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we defined faith this way, using the words of one pastor, faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, not just an assent to truths, but heartfelt valuing and treasuring of all that God promises to be for us in Jesus. Do you understand that God is the only one capable of measuring up to the standards of God. God in and of himself defines holiness. He defines perfection. He is perfection. He embodies holiness. And so when God gives us a standard, by definition, he cannot give us a standard that is any lower than who he is. And therefore, God himself is the only one who can attain that standard. And if that is true, then our right standing before God, our acceptance in the eyes of God, can only come through believing what God himself has been for us in Jesus Christ. Trying to earn your salvation through obedience to the law, then, is the opposite of that. It is the opposite of of faith. It is, in the words of one commentator, living by doing rather than living by faith. And believing and doing, says this commentator, are mutually exclusive. They do not and cannot work together. Well, how can that be? You cannot both claim Jesus and in doing so admit that you are unable to save yourself only to turn around and claim that your own good, and claim your own good works by which you implicitly declare that you do not need help you cannot have both they work in opposite directions doing and faith doing and believing lead to opposite places Faith requires then not just reliance on Jesus Christ, it also requires the abandonment of, of your dependence on anything else. That you cannot depend on Jesus Christ and depend on something else because if you're depending on something else, you are unable to depend on Jesus Christ. So how then does Jesus do this for us? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law the curse that we deserve because of our failure to obey it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul here again gives us another citation from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, which says this beginning in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Listen, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See, to die on a tree, according to Deuteronomy 21, To die on a tree was the death of criminals and the treacherous. It was a punishment that was reserved for the most heinous of crimes, the most violent offenders, the worst of the worst. And within the laws of the Old Testament, to die on a tree was an indication of one's rejection by God. The law declared in no uncertain terms that anyone who was hanged on a tree was cursed by God. So much so that the law required that that person be removed from the tree and buried the same day so that the mere sight of it wouldn't be an insult to God. See, death on a cross is the most visceral and violent form of death on a tree that anyone could concoct. And the Romans perfected the insult. Here is the criminal on the tree, naked and ashamed, nailed to a tree in such a way that they were still alive, but gasping for breath. Because on the Roman cross, the cause of death was not blood loss, but asphyxiation. It was utter torment. It was so horrific in its nature that a word had to be invented to define its terror. Our word excruciating comes from the Latin excrucis, it literally means out of the cross. That the pain and the suffering and the brutality of the cross was so violent and so offensive that we couldn't even define, in terms that we had, how horrific it was. And so it makes sense then, both within the context of the law in Deuteronomy and just within the natural experience of the human life, that any Jewish passerby who would walk by this scene of a man hanging on the cross would look and rightly think, here is one who must be cursed by God. What other explanation is there for this sort of suffering, for this sort of brutality? And the gospel writers don't. They don't shy away from this definition at all. What's fascinating as you read the Gospel writers is that they often refer to the cross as a tree. I mean, how telling is it that the symbol of our faith is a cross? It is natural then that it would be hard for any person of the Jewish faith to look at the cross and to look at Jesus and to imagine that anything good could come from this since inherently the cross was a curse. And Paul is saying in this passage, look at that cross. Do you see that that is the penalty for your sin and mine? Do you understand that that is how offensive your sin and mine is to God? That our violation of the law, our rebellion against him, our defiance against the creator God, is so wicked that what it deserves is not only death, but death on the tree. The curse of God, spiritual separation. But, Paul says, Jesus became the curse for us. See, on that cross hung Jesus, the one person in the history of the universe who had obeyed the law perfectly in its entirety for every moment of his life. He had done the impossible because he was the God-man, as we talked about in our confession of faith. The only one capable of both living the perfect life, dying a death, and yet still conquering death through what he did. And in his great love for us, he became the curse And that idea in and of itself was what was so offensive to these Judaizers because it forced them into a position of of having to come to grips with the idea that this person who claimed to be the Messiah, this person who claimed to be God incarnate, this one who claimed to be the Savior and the King was also going to be damned of God. How could those two things possibly intersect? A Messiah who became the curse? A Messiah on a tree? A Messiah who was abandoned by God on the tree? Because as Jesus hung on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. In that moment, all of our sin was imputed to Christ, assigned to Christ in that moment, as it were, in the words of Martin Luther, it was as if he was not the Messiah at all, as if he was not the God-man. He was a criminal. He was violent. He was a thief. He was an adulterer. He was whatever our sin is. And he took on himself in that moment the sin itself and the suffering for it in order to provide our redemption. A term redemption is a slave term. That when someone was enslaved, a a family member or a generous benefactor could come along and could purchase purchase that slave from the person who currently owned them and then set them free. To redeem somebody was to move them from slavery into liberation. And this is what led the Apostle Paul to preach in his sermon in Acts chapter 13, these words. Listen closely. This is a sermon from Paul, Acts 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see the connection? The perfect law of Moses, the perfect law given by God to Moses that defined the moral and the civil and the ceremonial laws that the people of God had to obey but imperfectly were unable to do, that therefore kept them chained and enslaved, condemned, from that they had now been freed by Jesus Christ, brought into forgiveness, redeemed into freedom of salvation. The death of Jesus on the cross brought relief from the burdens of the law. It brought liberation from the slavery of the law. It brought freedom from the accusations of the law. It brought deliverance from the penalties of the law for anyone who would have faith in Jesus Christ. And look then at the final outcome that Paul presents, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, a Jewish blessing, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, the Judaizers were totally fine with this Jesus, so long as he was just for the Gentiles. But if you really wanted the promise of Abraham, if you really wanted the blessing of Abraham, if you really wanted the blessing that belonged to the people of Israel, said the Judaizers, you must add Judaism to your faith. And Paul here in this moment pulls no punches when he tells them the blessing of Abraham, the blessing you Judaizers that you think is reserved for your own ethnic people and for people who convert into your faith has now been extended to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, says Paul, the blessing of Abraham, which is the promise of family belonging, the promise of spiritual inheritance, the promise of eternal blessing, has come to the Gentiles. And what's more than that, says Paul, as if God needed to do more or could have even offered more, he gave us his own spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has been provided to you. The Spirit of God, that once had been limited to particular places and particular times, at anointings of kings or of prophets in the Holy of Holies, has now been given directly to you. The seal of your adoption into a new spiritual family. This is what Luther referred to as the great exchange where your sin was imputed to Christ. All of your wickedness and all of your failure, the sin that you used to commit before coming to know Christ, the sin that you now commit in the middle of knowing Christ, the sin that you struggle with ongoing, that you feel like you're never going to be able to kick, all of that sin was placed onto Jesus Christ and in one fell swoop at the cross, it was forever paid for, forever forgiven so that the effects are now ongoing, so that in this moment where you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you're saved by faith in him, not only are you saved from all of the sins you ever have committed, but all of the sins that you have yet to commit are already forgiven in Christ. So that you no longer have to beg and plead and ask for God to forgive something that he's already forgiven. Wondering if forgiveness could possibly be granted for your failures. The assurance stands at the cross where once for all your sin was paid for. Your sin imputed to Christ. And in that great exchange, his righteousness imputed to you. His perfect life that you could never live his perfect obedience to the Father, his perfect submission to his Father's will, his perfect dependence on the Holy Spirit, his perfect life assigned to you. So that the life you now live, as Paul said, is the life of Christ being lived in you. So that when God sees you, even in the moment immediately following your greatest failure in sin, If you are in Christ, what he sees is not a failed sinner, but a beloved son or daughter. That is perhaps the hardest thing for us to grasp. How could I be loved like that? How could God actually care about me that way? Now there's a whole other sermon series to be had in order to explore the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, but suffice to say that the Spirit brings with him what the law never could. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the seal of our salvation, the assurance of it. He brings conviction where the law could only bring condemnation. He provides assurance where the law could only provide doubt. He delivers blessing where the law could only deliver cursing. He enables true obedience where the law could only enable resentful compliance. He ushers in peace when the law could only usher in anxiety. He produces true fruit where the law could only produce death. And so to those who've tried to live a good life and found failure and heartache, To those who've been burdened and bothered and crushed by the weight of the law, today is the day to stop looking to your own vain efforts of obedience to provide what they never can and what they were never intended to. Today is the day to look to Jesus who carried the burden and removed the penalty and to find freedom. Today is the day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved by him. And to those in this room who've been saved but are trying to return to the law, who are reading the Bible for inspiration or for devotion or as a guidebook or as a rule book but are missing the arc of the gospel for which the Bible was intended, For those who read the Bible looking forward to do things other than seeing what Jesus has done already, don't shackle yourself with chains that were never yours to begin with. Live in the freedom that Christ provided according to the spirit that he's granted. And how do you know if that's you? Well, if the Christian life for you feels burdensome and heavy and impossible, then you may be trying to live by doing rather than living by faith. Because as Paul said in his sermon, by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And perhaps there's someone here who says, well, I'm not going to worry about any of this. I'm not going to try to follow and obey the law because then I'll be responsible for it, nor am I going to try to have faith in Jesus Christ because I don't want anything to do with any of it. Understand that whether or not you recognize that the burden of the law is still resting on you, The penalty of the law, the penalty of rebellion against God shaking your fist in the face of your creator still hangs over your head. And you're back where we started in verse 10. With God's curse awaiting you, his wrath and punishment held for you and what he offers is salvation and freedom in him. And maybe you're here and you're wrestling with the assurance of your salvation and you're wondering if you even know Christ at all. The inclination for many in that moment is to look to the interior. How do I feel? Have I been struggling with sin? Have I been giving in to sin? Have I been spending time in the word? Am I going to church? Am I giving? Am I volunteering? Am I doing all the right things? Am I a good citizen and a good neighbor? And as long as I'm doing those things, maybe that's where I'll find my assurance. Maybe that's where I'll find my hope. And the problem is you are looking for assurance in the absolute last place you will find it, which is you. And the invitation of this text instead is to look for your assurance in what Christ has already accomplished for you, to look outside of yourself for your hope and your comfort and your peace, to look to the one person who can absolutely guarantee it permanently and forever. To look to the cross and go, alas and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, his righteousness imputed to you and your wickedness imputed to him. That is your assurance. That is your hope. That is your confidence look to the external unchanging guarantee of your salvation, the finished work of Christ on the cross. So live by faith, confident assurance in what God has promised and rest in the goodness of the promised Holy Spirit's presence within you. May today be the day that your assurance is renewed or found for the very first time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. That your word is not meant just to be a guidebook, because frankly, if that's what it was intended to be, it wouldn't be a very good one. There's all sorts of struggles and problems that we face in life where if we tried to find the specific answer to a specific question, we'd never find it. And it's not meant to be a rule book. To the extent that you give us commands and rules, it's to reveal our own inability to follow them. And it's not meant to be purely devotional. What's the one nugget that's going to carry me through today or it's, or even just inspirational. How do I feel better about life? No, what it's meant to do is to reveal the whole of the gospel to reveal our need for Christ and the way that Christ meets us in our need and the way that Christ permanently accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish in ourselves. So God, help us to find in your word the gospel. Help us not to read your Bible and miss it, but that we would find it afresh and anew every time we open its pages. God, work in our hearts today for those who don't know you, Convict and convince of sin. Lead them to a point of repentance and trust and faith in you. For those who know you and have forgotten, remind them of their assurance through the cross. For those who know their salvation but are trying to run back to the law, God, free them from the shackles that they are trying to, to relock around their soul. Bring us into freedom and liberation today. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.